I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Dean Detloth. Uh, this week on the show, we're talking with Jim Hodgson, who longtime listeners of the show will recognize pretty quickly if you've never heard him before. Uh, Jim is someone that we often call up when something happens in Latin America that we want to know more about. He'll tell you more about himself in a moment. But uh, one thing that you should know is we wanted to talk to him about the elections in Venezuela. And uh, in particular, Jim has uh, had a, an interesting history with that country. He was an election observer um, a couple of times, uh, most recently in the controversial elections that gave uh, Nicolas Maduro the presidency and kicked off all kinds of um, imperialist stuff around the world. Uh, so you can look forward to that. Yeah, it's a really cool conversation that we have with Jim. Um, every time we have him on, I learn so much. And uh, this time is no exception. So buckle in, get ready to learn about the <laughs> elections in Venezuela. And uh, and then for the larger, uh, more philosophical conversation about uh, uh, Venezuela, the revolutionary situation there and uh, religion there. So it's pretty cool. Um, let's go to the interview. Welcome back to the show, Jim. Uh, as a Christian who's spent the last several decades building solidarity between Latin America and Canada, for folks who don't know, Jim has become one of our go-to guests for thinking about Latin America and tracking what's going on in that region and trying to understand it as Christian people on the left. Uh, we recently had you on, Jim, to talk about the elections in Bolivia. We encourage everyone to check that out. Uh, we talk a lot more about Jim's background and things there, too. But for folks who are new to the show or haven't heard you here before, can you briefly introduce yourself? Um, who are you uh, and what uh, makes you interested or invested in what's going on in Latin America? Uh, thanks, uh, Dean and Matt. It's really great to be back with you with you both uh, today on the Magnificast. And um, I really appreciate the, the chance to, to think more deeply with you uh, uh, about what's going on in Latin America, but then especially through that that lens of um, Christian possibility, I, I guess, you know, what we, what we hope for, what we dream of um, in terms of uh, potential change um, that, that improves the lives of people, um, not just in Latin America and the Caribbean, but everywhere. So anyway, I uh, come to this from 30, more than 35 years of, of work uh, in journalism in Latin America and usually connected in one way or another with um, the churches or the ecumenical movement. Um, I, uh, my, you know, I'm trained as a journalist and uh, I've worked in communications jobs in the Dominican Republic um, in the 80s and in kind of an education project in Mexico in the 90s. Um, I was the Mexico correspondent for Catholic News Service for uh, three years in the 90s. and. So I kind of built a career around journalism churches in Latin America. And then uh, for the last 20 years, I worked with the United Church of Canada, which is the largest Protestant church in Canada and responsible there for work in um, Latin America and the Caribbean. And a big part of our work uh, in these years has been, first of all, I guess, with Cuba, which goes back uh, decades, and Colombia, really, since the 90s. Um, and what was going on in Venezuela was having an having impacts positive and negative in Cuba and Colombia. And that's what got me involved in Venezuela uh, since about 2004. 
Well, Jim, your uh, your life story never fails to impress us. It's so cool. You have so much good experience. Um, but let's get right down to it, I guess. Uh, this past week, there was a really important election in Venezuela, I think, as most of the elections have been lately. Um, Venezuelans came together to vote on representatives for their national assembly. So can you give us the broad strokes of that uh, election? Who won? Who lost? Why was it important? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's the elections. Um have been vital in advancing uh, a democratic project in Venezuela since 1999 and uh, since the election of Hugo Chavez as president way back then. And uh, so there have been presidential elections and there are parliamentary elections that happen on different a different calendar. Uh, so this was every five years they have parliamentary elections or national assembly elections and, and that's what just happened. Um, the last uh, parliamentary elections were in 2015, and that time the opposition uh, parties uh, participated in the election and actually won them with about 65 percent of the and won about 65 percent of the seats in the legislature. Um, so this time uh, the question was, well, what would happen? And uh, but it gets complicated. We can go into this a bit more deeply, um, but the. Um, this time, the part of the opposition refused to participate in the election. Another part of the opposition did participate, and that, that part actually included some of the traditional parties um, uh, in, of Venezuelan politics going back into the 70s and 80s. Um, so, but, but, the, 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 but the part of the opposition that is supported by the United States and Canada and the European Union and so on, they boycotted the election. So what happened? People uh, voted, and uh, and the Maduro or the President Maduro and his party, called the PSUV, won a majority of the seats. Um, but the vote happened with only about thirty-one percent of the uh, voters participating in the in the vote, and that has provoked some questioning. Nevertheless. <laughs> It seems to me that uh, lots of countries have uh, elections that uh, don't get good voter turnout. Um, nobody questions the outcome because of that. Uh, and, and this, in a way, the, the, the fact that the election was held, um, that the governing party won a majority of the seats, um, and the those those hardline opposition parties are now outside of the parliamentary system, which worrisome in a way. But but it also is like another nail in the coffin of this effort um, by the United States and Canada and other countries to use kind of um, illegal means to try to subvert or undermine or even overthrow the the uh, Maduro government. Um, so the the after the 2015 election, uh, the system is that there are rotating presidents of the Congress. And in uh, January 2019, it happened that a guy named uh, Juan Guaido was the um, president of uh, the National Assembly. Um, and uh, so he proclaimed himself uh, president of, uh, of the country. And then the United States, Canada, and this other group of nations called the Lima Group uh, very quickly recognized him as the president of um, uh, Venezuela. And uh, I guess about 50 countries around the world did that. And uh, and that created a whole series of complications, uh, you know, to, to, to my mind. Um, I am much more a political realist, I guess, that, uh, thinking that you know, you, you whether you like a government in a place or not, uh, you should deal with them seriously um, and uh, work out your differences through dialogue. Um, and uh, so the, the the strategy that that has been uh, played out since January 2019, I think we're we must be nearing the end of that because it has not produced um, the results that um, Canada, the United States, and the European Union and others wanted. Um, other countries, meanwhile, were promoting uh, uh, dialogue with the opposition, and there were several efforts uh, before 2019 and since 2019 to 
gathered the opposition with the government, uh, Norway, Uruguay, uh, 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 parts of the Dominican and Spanish governments at different moments, uh, the, the Vatican at a different moment. Uh, they've all been involved in trying to get a, a dialogue going. And usually it's been the um, this hardline opposition that's backed by the United States and paid by the United States um, that's been reluctant to engage in dialogue. So I'm sorry, that, that may be a little bit confusing uh, and we can go into it in a bit more detail if you want, if, the, if I created more questions than answers here. Yeah, well, we can certainly break some of that uh, that response down, but it's good to have all of that on the table. There are so many moving parts to all of this. Um, especially as you were saying, you know, the National Assembly has been the, uh, the well, one of the primary points of tension in the government in Venezuela. So to have this turnover is is quite a remarkable thing. Um, we can talk more about that in a moment, but I want to zero in on the, uh, the turnout. So, you know, you mentioned that the uh, turnout was low, which of course is, you know, not a problem unique to Venezuela alone. Lots of countries, as you said, have low turnouts. Um, Venezuela Analysis, one uh, website that we like to look at, says the turnout was around 30% or so. Um, you know, not sure exactly what all the uh, estimates might cash out to being, but in any case, it's low. Uh, what can we make of that low turnout? Um, you know, what what are you seeing people say about it, and uh, how might we contextualize that in the, the sort of political project or history of Venezuela? Um, yeah, thanks. The, 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 the turnout is low. I think it's the lowest in the, the 21, the 21 years of elections in the, in this history, the Hugo Chavez, uh, Maduro, uh, period. And, um, and in a way it, it is disappointing. On the other hand, it, it, it was expected, um, you know, we're in a pandemic. Uh, some of the parties had called for a boycott. The, the, the United States, Canada, the European Union all said they wouldn't recognize the results of the election. Um, but I think much more profound than that, there's just a sense of exhaustion. So I, I've uh, been in conversations, uh, you know, Zoom calls, reports back from people who were in Venezuela as observers um, for the election. And uh, they just say, you know, the, the, the effect of the sanctions, especially well, the, the sanctions kind of began to hit in 2015 and then were strengthened in 2017 and since then in, in different waves. Um, but before that, there was also the collapse of oil prices. So we're now on to about uh, seven or eight years of um, a, a weak economy um, in Venezuela that has been damaged further by the effect of the sanctions. So a shopping trip is uh, described as like an epic uh, series of lineups, complications in how you pay for it. Um, buying gasoline in the capital can take four or five hours in some of the uh, cities in more distant parts of the country. It can take several days and people take turns sleeping in the car uh, while uh, they wait for wait in a lineup for gasoline. And this, and, you know, so pandemic, boycott, exhaustion, um, you know, those are those are those are factors in, in the um, in the low turnout. Uh, it's hard to maintain enthusiasm um, in the face of all of that. And we know we, we know from the past, uh, what damaging an economy can do to a revolutionary process. You know, the you know, Chile before the coup in 1973 was um, assaulted by by strikes, um, you know, organized by not by the workers but by the companies. Uh, Nicaragua was in the 80s was uh, you know afflicted by that war and and isolation and um, an economic boycott, um, and you know when the election finally happened in the second election finally happened in 1990, the Sandinistas lost. Um, so you know the the effect the effect of um, external factors, the sanctions, um, is quite dramatic. Uh, it's hard to get. Um, it's hard to get 
almost anything now. Um, the, the, the government has done a better job on food security in, in the past few years, um, basically because they had no alternative. Um, they, they couldn't import things from other places. Um, and so there are all kinds of growing projects and, and, and so on. But, uh, but, it, but it's hard to get, um, get what you need to keep going. And of course, you know, so, so poor uh, election turnout isn't the only symptom of uh, the weakened economy. And um, before the pandemic, anyway, uh, many people were leaving Venezuela uh, for other countries in hope of uh, something better. Um, since the pandemic, some have returned uh, because they're, you know, the <coughs> the possibilities in Colombia or Ecuador have diminished as well, and there, there's, uh, you know, frankly, uh, better attention to healthcare in Venezuela than in some of the other countries around. So, you know, like all of those things play out together. Um, eventually, in the conversation, I kind of want to get around to a, a bit more of a philosophical look at, uh, you know, what it takes to um, to keep people engaged in a revolutionary process. This is something that you know we we talked a bit about Marta Harnacker and. Um, uh, and Hugo Chavez and some of their visions, and so we'll, we'll come around to that in a bit. But but just you know, I think it, it we have to be honest and say it's really hard in Venezuela right now, and it's hard for those who who um, support a, a process of revolutionary change um, to keep up the enthusiasm of people when it's just become so um, so hard at the material level. Um, to uh, to get what you need to to live well. I think that's a really helpful explanation of, of just like what's happening. Um, I mean, I think people that are paying attention, at least uh, on the left in the U.S. and Canada, they know about the sanctions and stuff like that. But to explain it in that way, to kind of like connect all of these problems together and, and think about how they might uh, hamper um, voter turnout or you know anything like that, is just a, a really helpful explanation. It sort of gives us a more holistic look at what might be happening. Um, before we do move on to the more philosophical discussion, um, it, something that's like worth noting is that um, a lot of the opposition parties um, processed the election. And I know this might sound like kind of naive at this point, but uh, maybe it'll be a fruitful, fruitful jumping off point for discussion. Like you mentioned, there are groups, uh, parties, candidates who just decided that they were going to boycott the election. Um, like what's what's that about? What's happening? Like, how would you explain that to somebody who might not know? One of the one of the factors maybe that played out in favor of uh, Chavez and Maduro has been the division in the opposition over 20 odd, 20 odd years, um, that it's really hard to get them uh, to work. It's really hard even for the United States to get them to work together. Oh. So uh, the, the differences are ideological or partisan, uh, egotistical. Uh, the, uh, there's also, you know, a sector of the opposition that quite frankly takes money from, from the United States, uh, Guaido himself. Um, and there's another sector of the opposition that I think really wants what's best for the Venezuelan people. They don't agree with uh, the Chavez Maduro process, but, uh, but you know, they, they, and they might be neoliberal capitalists, but they think that the better way to uh, bring about change is by participating in uh, dialogues and in democratic uh, uh, processes. So uh, those parties participate. Um, <coughs> you know, to, to my mind, you, you don't, what is it? I think it's a, there's a quote uh, attributed to, is it Wayne, is it Wayne Gretzky? I, I try to remember now, uh, a Canadian hockey player anyway, uh, who said you can't, uh, you, you, you don't score on the shots you don't take. You can't win an election that you don't participate in. It, it just seems to me uh, the better thing for, for not just not just the opposition parties, but for the Venezuelan people, is to participate in a, in the democratic process. Um, and the process has been very democratic from the very beginning. And the, the constitution was approved democratically, uh, you know, after after two thousand. Um, so it's uh, 
But then I think, well, who are these people on the opposition? And there are people who I think are really de detached from reality. And you know, I can remember being there in 2004 at the time of the uh, the recall referendum when the opposition parties had had gathered signatures and forced uh, an attempt to uh, have Chavez removed uh, from office. So they had this referendum and Chavez won it with about 60% of the vote. Um, the next day, you know, the, the these opposition leaders were on television saying, well, you know, the only alternative we have left now is to assassinate him. And and I couldn't believe that they would say that on television, you know, breakfast television. There they are talking about assassinating the president. But that's where they would go. Like, rather than thinking, well, next time we have to conduct our campaign this way, they would go straight to this kind of absurd <coughs> um, extremist uh, uh approach to 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 bringing about change and i don't think much has changed so you have this hardline group of people on the outside who think they can benefit more from kind of u.s patronage um and uh you know kind of hoping that they'll win power in the old way of latin america uh through a coup or through some sort of military intervention and and you know, the, the past two years have just shown that that's not realistic. The past two years, the past 20 years, have shown that's not realistic. Um, I admire the those parties that did participate in the election. Um, they show that it's it's possible to uh, participate, win seats, uh, speak freely, um, offer up different possibilities. I mean, I think the more transparent and open and participatory um, a revolutionary process is, um, the better it is for all. You know, the, the, how do we, I think this was a great concern of Hugo Chavez was like, how, how do you ensure that people's voices are heard and they feel uh, a part of something that, that that's changing everybody's lives, hopefully for the better, knowing that rich people may not like it. Uh, well, that is a great segue into talking a bit more about that uh, political philosophy behind uh, the Venezuelan project, the Bolivarian Revolution. Um, I mean, it is a fascinating thing to see the opposition, um, certain segments of it, reacting in this way, right? Because the the whole premise is to try to undermine that participatory project. Um, you know, speaking of Venezuelan democracy more broadly, you mentioned uh, Marta Harnaker, who we've talked about on this show and and elsewhere in the past. Um, and her work with Hugo Chavez Harnaker, for people who don't know, she was a quite amazing um, Chilean uh, political philosopher and, and activist and all kinds of other things. Uh, she was an advocate for a really radical type of socialist participatory democracy and was also a, an advisor to Maduro. Um, do you see Maduro as a, an inheritor of that legacy um, that started with Chavez and maybe is articulated in certain ways by someone like Marta Harnaker? Um, do you feel like things in Venezuela are deviating from that process? Uh, how do you sort of put these things together now since it has been, you know, 20 years into that process? Yeah, yeah, she was, um, <clears throat> well, she's somebody I, I came to know uh, slightly um, in Cuba in the early 2000s. And at the same time, she was very involved in, in Venezuela. And she traveled there and lived there for a time. Um, and she's somebody who I, I, I just... I have the most profound respect for her. Um, she um, wrote this sort of uh, amazing um, kind of textbook uh, of, of, of Marxism um, that's used in schools in Latin America to this day. You know, my my friends in Mexico studied it in high school, that, that kind of thing. Um, so she's incredibly, she was incredibly well known. And she, so in the early 2000s, she was close to Chavez, wrote a book about uh, published a book of, of interviews with him where you know she reflects he reflects on his process she also wrote um a book that's available in english called rebuilding the left um from uh, zed books uh, so i'd encourage people to look look for that um the the it's on, on the internet in a pdf version you, you, a bit of digging you can find it so Mar marta um had um, kind of a, a lively critique of of what had happened in you know the so-called 
what she called the real socialism or the, the, the socialism that was lived out in the, the, the Soviet Union and, and the countries of Eastern Europe, um, where she didn't feel that the, that the processes had engaged people sufficiently to um, really draw forth their loyalty to, to the process. And so what she saw different in the process led by, by Chavez, I think in the Cuban process as well, was a lot more effort to uh, engage with people in dialogue, um, in participation, in grassroots organizations, and you know from from that all the way up. And um, and that I think was kind of theoretical in the in the Soviet system, but but I think uh, Chavez, Castro too, um, and and their followers tried to uh, tried uh, profoundly to to engage people. Um, uh, very fully in, into the experience. And so Chavez would have all, all of these uh, like gatherings with people um, where he, they spoke about their problems and he talked about, well, what could, what could we do together to make things better? Um, and so that, that, that pr produced uh, great changes in education, healthcare, housing, um, agriculture uh, uh, over, over time. Um, so, uh, and I should just say, like something else about Martha that was interesting is that she came to her Marxism through her Catholicism, at least initially. Uh, she had been involved in Catholic Action, which was a movement uh, before we had liberation theology. Um, before Vatican II, there were these young Catholic workers and Catholic Action, Action Catholique, and uh, Probably better known in in French and Spa Spanish speaking contexts than in um, English speaking contexts, but 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 that's how how she came to Marx was because she came to a commitment to the poor, a commitment to justice, a commitment to social change. She went to France for her uh, further education and um, and and kind of drove herself to uh, to an understanding of Marxism that 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 fully embraced popular participation. Um, and and so what so your question is kind of well, what would she make of Maduro now? Uh, Marta, by the way, died um, in Vancouver uh, just over a year ago um, from cancer. and uh, her loss is a tragic one because she was she was active right up to the weeks before she died. Um, in, in questioning everything um, and questioning our orthodoxies on uh, a, a variety of issues through through a series of um, emails and reflections and um, essays. Um, so, so coming back to Maduro, what would she make of him? Well, she probably, you know, I guess I share this too. Maduro isn't the kind of... Um, Chavez had this ease about him, this engaging um, way of just talking about anything with anybody in any place. And Maduro is a bit more cautious than that. He's more of a, a bit more introverted. And uh, so he doesn't have that kind of uh, engagement, the, 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 the feeling with the people that, um, that Chavez has but, had. But, but he, you know, he comes to the work um, from his experience as a labor leader uh, in the Transportation Workers Union, his experience as a bus driver. He brings all of that and a passion for um, improving the situation of the people who uh, were locked out of um, power for, for too long. So I think Martha would appreciate uh, where uh, where Maduro is coming from uh, but still, that that process of building a, uh, a, a building a building a solid enough base to hold on to power um, through incredible challenges is is I think what would make her um, feel some concern right now. Um, you know it. I said before, you know, the sanctions and and everything else have been incredibly hard on on people, um, and uh, so how do you 
work in a way that engages people in trying to find common solutions and you know in the face of all that exhaustion and in the face of the lineups in the face of uh you know just not quite enough food and and all the rest of it um an economic system is clearly deteriorated so 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 the people need to be martha would say that the people need to feel they are part of the construction of something new um and and th i think that's it in at some risk right now just because of the um just because of the the the, the economic situation and the you know when you get 30 percent of the people uh, out to vote that's just maybe not a strong enough defense of the bolivarian process even if it's uh sufficient according to the constitution mm. Yeah, that all makes sense. I, I remember in uh, one essay, I couldn't tell you which one right now, but uh, Marta Harnaker says that uh, you know part of the part of the thing that you need to do when you're ha in, in a revolutionary process is make sure that it's irreversible. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I don't know, it's always a little bit tricky, right? Uh, it's always irreversible until it is reversible. But at least for right now, it seems like uh, like you said, um, Maduro is holding onto power in in a way that is, um, you know pretty pretty open but but like you said yeah it could always be um more so um that that's the other part of harnaker's work is uh the participatory planning kind of angle and i think that is uh it's a good note well i mean kind of on that point maduro has said that he really hopes that the national assembly um you know moving forward will adopt a posture of dialogue mm -hmm. and dialogue is one of those big words that uh people even like pope francis really uh like and have been suggesting as a way forward and i think it's a, a pretty good word um especially for venezuela so um what are the opportunities and the challenges for that kind of dialogue taking place in this situation well it's it's going to take a new push um and in a way uh some of it depends on how um uh, we in Canada and the United States relate to our governments. I mean, there, you know, I, I uh, it's, it's, uh, I don't, I, I, you know, I want to be hopeful, uh, you know, okay, so let's say, let's press hard on the, 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 the new Biden administration in the States and, uh, and, and try to make a change happen, um, for the good of everyone, you know, it's like, uh, struggling against imperialism um, shouldn't just be the task of Venezuelans and Cubans. Uh, it has to be the task of people in the United States and Canada too. Um, so how do you get uh, you know, at least some moderation of the Trump uh, sanctions? Um, uh, how do you re-engage diplomatically? You know, like maybe at first set the bar a bit low. Uh, you know, restore diplomatic relations, um, ease the worst of the sanctions, uh, uh, restore um, uh, capacity to trade in uh, uh, medicine and oil and food and, and things like that. You know, um, it's it's not you don't don't expect them to fall in love with each other, but you know, like press for the 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 basic. Um, the basic tools of uh, of a, a functioning modern world. Um, so, so, so I kind of feel some hope that you know a bit of change in the United States. Uh, uh, the the recognition that the Guaido strategy has failed, that the Lima Group strategy has failed. It's not brought about any any of the desired outcomes. Um, that there are other approaches that are proposed by other people, including Pope Francis, I mentioned before, uh, Norway, uh, Uruguay. Um, actually, right now in Latin America, there's quite a good um, constellation of countries, Mexico and Argentina now uh, as well, um, that, that would support dialogue as opposed to the confrontation. So, you know, the Lima Group approach, um, that hard right con confrontational approach that was designed to produce regime changes has failed. Um, yeah, so I, I, I hope that some new effort at dialogue can come about. Now, this isn't a dialogue that would reverse the process, I don't think. You know, you, it's a dialogue that would um, deal realistically with the choices that the people of Venezuela have made and continue to make over the over the past 21 years 
um, you know, uh, let's recognize that the, what happened before was unjust um, and wrong, and there can't be any return to the kind of economy where, you know, 20, 30 percent of the population benefited from the country's wealth and everybody else lived in misery. Um, the, the door was turned on that after 1999 and 2000, and then all the struggle since then. So, no, don't go back. But, but yeah, uh, there there needs to be a dialogue that 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 is a uh, a peaceful dialogue within the within the within what within the constitutional format that that Venezuelans chose for themselves. It it, it can't be a dialogue that. Um, returns everything to 1999. That would that would be um, that would be intolerable. Um, but I don't hear uh, Maduro um, saying that the dialogue is about giving anything up either. It's it's a dialogue about you know how how we move forward together from here. Yeah, I mean that's the big million dollar question, I guess. How do you move forward, and um, how do you do that with people who have profoundly different visions, perhaps? Um, but one thing that I think you, uh, you know, are uniquely skilled at helping us figure out, too, is the composition of progressive Christianity in Venezuela and perhaps what role it plays in this dialogue and in the participatory process. Um, you know, the Catholic bishops are famously opposed to Maduro, but there are a handful of outspoken priests who have been supporters of Chavez and Maduro. Um, you know, what does liberation theology look like in Venezuela? What do sort of Christians in Venezuela or Latin America seem to think about that Chavista experiment. And um, maybe too, you know, noting this Catholic opposition to Maduro is, is so fascinating since Maduro himself has a certain, um, you know, openness about uh, faith and Christianity and, and so did Chavez. So maybe you can help us figure out um, what's going on there. Yeah, I, I think um, <clears throat> it was, uh, Latin America is a place where um, Christianity kind of enlivens in uh, everything. You, you you just you know my my friends who are atheists in Latin America are very Catholic atheists, um, and it's just it's just it's you, religion is part of life. You you live it, you breathe it. Uh, it's in every plaza. It's in every conversation. It's in your family relationships, it's in how you think about life and death, um, whether you wish it were otherwise or not. So, so in uh, Venezuela, so I think one thing that happened, I guess, since the Cuban Revolution in the '60s, which kind of, uh, at least initially, followed the Soviet model of uh, kind of antipathy towards organized religion, um, the religious movements uh, since then have. have uh, to some degree or other, embraced the Christianity, the, the Christian faith of their people from the Nicaraguan revolution on forward. Um, and so yeah, that was uh, uh, very lively in, uh, in the style of Chavez and, and Maduro as well. Um, and they kind of, uh, both of them, um, kind of come from Catholic spaces, but, but embrace that uh, charismatic or Pentecostal uh, style of uh, of worship that, that 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 lots of Christians in in Latin America embrace. So, so there's a couple of things here. Uh, one is like the Catholic bishops in Venezuela um, uh, come from a certain class, and there's a kind of a class divide between bishops and the faithful. And this was true in Nicaragua in the 80s as well. The the bishops um, tended to oppose the, the the social change, the revolutionary change, and the the faithful overwhelmingly supported it. You know, the the yeah, especially the less material resources that people had, the more they supported those revolutionary processes. So, um, and you know that that's a problem throughout Latin America. You know, the bishop people get to be bishops um, because of who they who they were or who their families were and you know very often their brother is a politician or another brother is a general and you know the um so so th there's this class thing that goes on between bishops and and other people including many priests so so that was true in venezuela um and it's still true uh and so 
so at another level in Venezuela, you have uh, a variety of uh, ecumenical organizations that have been around for years. And I'll mention two of them uh, that were, you know, kind of one way or another tied to liberation theology. Um, uh, you know, it, well, in different moments. So Funda Latin is, is uh, the Latin American Foundation for Human Rights and Social Development, Funda Latin, and it's uh, a very good organization, pro-Chavez, pro it's rooted in 40 years of class struggle. Um, it's uh, the, the head of it is a, a Roman Catholic uh, religious woman. Um, it's uh, it's the it's this it's kind of uh, among other things a think tank. It's a it's one of the spaces where Christians have come together to analyze and publish the uh, the impacts as they see them of the sanctions. Uh, for me, a, a tremendous ally. There's another organization that's also really interesting called Acción Ecumenica or um, Ecumenical Action, which you know I knew from a distance in the 80s and 90s. They 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 um, had good publications that they they might be um, maybe a bit more uh, classic liberal middle class. Um, they're pretty good on some issues, uh, gender justice, LGBT rights, uh, people living with HIV and AIDS, but they've tended to be more anti-Chavista um, or suspicious of the 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 Chavez process. I've been in the same room with both organizations, and they're they're polite to each other. Fund Latin and Acción Ecumenica. They're kind of a good model for, for the future. Like how people who have different readings on uh, on the situation in Venezuela can can talk to each other um, across differences, and they're, they're pretty deep differences, but they, but they do talk to each other. Um, and they're they're both they both have roots in that uh, changing that proposal for change that that is liberation theology the, the proposal that that more than proposal that that uh, commitment um, to an option for the poor that that that, that, that really puts the poor in power that uh, action ecumenica maybe stops just short of that but the but the funda latin is solid there um i wanted to mention as well the um the pentecostal churches like the for, for for those of us in North America, we, we we kind of tend, and this is maybe unfair even here, to lump Pentecostals together with more conservative evangelicals in our midst, and and this may be more a problem among white churches than among Latino churches or or um, Afro American churches. Um, but anyway, you know, the, so for me, when I started to get to know. Pentecostals in Venezuela, Peru, and a few other places, I encountered these people who had a, you know, Pentecostal style of worship, but their political commitments, their um, their social commitments were solidly on the left. Their commitment to inclusion of LGBT people is, is clear. Um, uh, the commitment to education is clear, you know, the, the, they're, they're different from the model of Pentecostals we have here. So there's a group in Venezuela called the Union of Evangelical Pentecostals of Venezuela, the UEPV. And um, they're the, uh, among the, on the Pentecostal side, the, the group that I know best, and I came to know them through the work of the, um, of two American uh, denominations, the United Church of Christ and the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and they, those two churches, have a common board of global mission, and so they've had this long-standing relationship with the, the Pentecostal um, Union in in Venezuela, and so we've kind of, so the United Church of Canada, where I was working these past twenty years, um, entered into a full communion agreement with the those two U.S. denominations, and through that, we've kind of gotten closer to. Um, some of their partners and so including the 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 evangelical pentecostals of venezuela it's just um to, to me it's been refreshing uh to meet pentecostals in latin america who are progressive across a really wide range of issues um yeah so 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 in so there's other other churches as well but but they they kind of fall in different spaces so um, some of the Presbyterians are pretty solidly with the 
Bolivarian process, the revolutionary process in Venezuela, some of the leaders are a bit more cautious. Um, the Lutheran bishop is uh, kind of noted as one of the more most conservative Lutheran leaders in Latin America, but he's a counterpoint to other Lutheran leaders in Latin America who are tremendously progressive. Um, so, you know, the, it, the Methodists are not united in um, Venezuela. Uh, they're kind of um, dispersed regionally, and I've had uh, not enough contact with them. Uh, I would have liked to have uh, gotten to know them better. Um, it's, it's, that's, that's, that's work to be done in the future by others, I guess. That's so fascinating to hear about how, you know, all of these different, uh, these different denominations who in the United States probably have a very, uh, anti-Chavez sort of outlook, um, have, uh, in, in some ways at least, uh, you know, supported, supported Chavez, yeah. supported the, the Bolivarian revolution in Venezuela. It's a really fascinating thing. Well, I mean, on that note, what what lessons might Venezuela have to to teach Christians in the United States or in Canada, right? Um, it, th this wildly different sort of arrangement of Christians and politics, I think, um, might do a lot for us uh, in North America. So I, I don't know what uh, what big lessons do you think there are to learn uh, for us. Fascinating question. I think um, you know those of us who are Roman Catholic have learned to be a bit suspicious of our of our leaders over time. Um, and uh, and and I think, you know, maybe Protestants uh, could be more suspicious of their leaders, too. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, in the sense of, uh, you know, what are your class interests? To put it to put it that bluntly, you know, whose side are you on um, when you speak the way you speak? You know, if yeah. So anyway, ask that question. <laughs> I think I think as well, like, you know, listening, hearing profoundly, welcoming divergent voices, you know, the 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 emerging uh, I shouldn't say emerging, the, the historic voices of African American leaders, uh not just uh, Martin Luther King, but all of the others and then the, the the ones now. Um uh, the the Hispanic leaders, the the, the leaders of the Latino churches, are um, uh, not just outspoken about the issues that directly affect them, the you know like the migration and what have you, or, or racism, but but also about the economic divides and the and the impact of the pandemic on um, racial racialized minorities, and uh, you know like the. I think that some spaces like the National Council of Churches, they're getting it. They're putting those voices front and center in in the way they represent themselves uh, publicly now. Um, and, you know, the nomination, the, the well, nomination, the, the naming of uh, the Archbishop of Washington from African-American as a cardinal um, is a is a great symbolic step. It's, it's again, um, in the United States and in, in Canada too, uh, to get some different voices up there that aren't the um, voices of white privilege. Um, when you get past the sort of focus on the um, the church and start hearing the voices of other or other voices or other churches or other church leaders, um, you might get some different perspectives on some of the issues. Yes, and 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 get some insight into what changes are possible and necessary. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And certainly, um, you know, the situations are different, but the uh, that commitment to trying to hear from people from communities that are speaking honestly about their experience, uh, obviously, that is not different um, anywhere you find uh, people um, trying to fight for justice. You know, on, on the show, we talk a lot about liberation theology, which uh, is is really good at trying to zero in on people who are more uh, marginalized in any given situation. And we've talked a lot about Maduro and the PSUV. Um, we've talked about maybe how uh, in the past we've talked about how the Chavisa project is in large part a kind of um, way in which the marginalized, marginalized people have gotten power. Um, but maybe at the end here, we could start talking a bit about the actual Venezuelans who are affected by economic sanctions. You know, you've mentioned it a few times in the conversation, but what does it mean for us to be on the side of marginalized people to kind of be true to that liberation theology legacy 
when we live in the countries that are doing the marginalizing or responsible for uh, at least contributing to the exacerbation of those kinds of inequalities. Yeah, thanks. So I, when we talk, we, we've talked before about the option for the poor. And so part of that is uh, looking at, at, at situations and, you know, they may be complex situations, but, but um, where, where are the, where the people, um, where the, the, the poorest or most marginalized or the, the most repressed, uh, who are they and, and what's going on with them and how, how do you get on their side? And I think like with that lens in mind, um, you look at the impact of sanctions, you know, Venezuelan, Venezuela can't buy wheat from Canada. They can't buy fertilizers from Colombia or they can't buy insulin from Germany. Um, uh, and this plays out in, in different ways in other parts of the world. North Korea can't buy x-ray machines um, uh, because they have metal in them. Um, you know, like these, these are, these, this, is, uh, this is crazy and crazy making. Um, so, so our countries, Canada, the United States, uh, Europe, uh, you know, sanctions have become this tool that's used by powerful countries against less powerful countries to try to get them to conform to whatever, uh, the, their, their notion of, uh, whatever democracy is, or, uh, their notion of how economies should be run. Um, so, so to me, when I, when I think about Venezuela and what the sanctions are doing to people, it makes me come back to the policies that are driven from here. Um, so one of the things we, we started doing from the United Church was just to work with others on the impact of sanctions. Um, and it was interesting. I'll, I'll be pretty transparent here. You know, we talked a lot about the unintended humanitarian impact of sanctions and and that that word unintended it was intended to bring more people on board um you know I, I think some of the impacts of sanctions are actually there by design but but you know more people will um get get on board if you refer to them as unintended uh, unintended humanitarian consequences so we talk about unintended humanitarian consequences by which we mean um access to healthcare. You know, supposedly purchase of medicine is uh, uh, is uh, supposedly purchasing medicine is um, to uh, is exempt from sanctions and uh, and and food is exempt from sanctions. But the problem is that when you when you try to buy your insulin from Germany uh, or wheat from Canada, the First of all, there's the banks won't handle the um, won't handle the money, you know, the, the, the because the U.S. runs the, this international SWIFT banking system, um, the the banks will not transfer the money necessary to pay for um, the medicine um, for wheat from Canada. No shipping company will take the wheat, you know, even though it's it, wheat explicitly is not. Uh, prohibited uh is not sanctioned but no shipping company will take it there um yeah so we so what we started to try to do uh, in the past couple of years has been to work with other organizations uh a bit more globally on the whole question of sanctions so um uh, north korea uh faces some of the same problems that Venezuela has. Uh, Syria, Iran has some of the same problems. Um, uh, so um, Iran, uh, it, it, when there was an earthquake a few years ago, it was really hard to get uh, material aid into Iran um, because of the sanctions. So those kinds of things shouldn't happen, but those are uh, like political policy pressure points that, that we can make. And so together with our um, church colleagues in the states um we will press the uh the the the, the, new, the new biden administration and the the canadian government will continue to press on the sanctions question <coughs> not just around venezuela but uh north korea iran as well um there there a lot of noise is also made about uh humanitarian aid and supposedly um, Venezuela prohibits uh, humanitarian aid from entering, and that's just not true. Um, but the point is, you you can't um, 
use humanitarian aid to subvert the democratically elected government. Uh, and, and that's what uh, the US government uh, was trying to do in January 2019 when they um, tried to force stuff across bridges in, from Colombia to Venezuela. Um, so the way you deliver aid in Venezuela or anywhere else is by working with the government. I mean, it would be the same uh, right now in Central America, in Honduras and, and Nicaragua in the wake of the hurricanes. You, um, work with the governments and the NGOs in a transparent way. Um, and that's all that Venezuela has been asking for is work with us. Uh, don't subvert us. Don't go behind our backs. But to make that possible, you need diplomatic relations. And that's what Canada and the United States are lacking right now. So everything we can do to get <coughs> back on track with diplomatic relations, um, responsible humanitarian aid, uh, ending the sanctions, all of those things will uh, demonstrate that we really do care about the, the, the poorest and most marginalized people in Venezuela and elsewhere, North Korea, Iran. I think it's such a helpful thing to draw out sort of the absurdity of those sanctions and just like how absolutely terrible they are. I, I don't know. I mean, like once you start getting into it and you just realize that there are a handful of countries around the United States and there's a handful of countries around the world that the United States will just like not touch and prohibit other people from touching. It just seems like the most absurd thing ever. Like it's so obviously and brazenly politically motivated um, violence against another country to not let them trade or even receive, you know, um, they can't buy wheat. It's crazy. It's a, it's ridiculous. Um, it, it's, you know, in to even, to even flip it the other way, to mean maybe to explicate how weird it all is, right? Like, the, the United States has historically rejected like Cuban doctors who want to come do humanitarian missions. Right. And like Cuba didn't just force them in. <laughs> it's not, that wasn't the plan. And the United States thinks that the, the rules apply differently to them for some reason. Um, well, I mean, cause they have massive military force, but still it just, it just uh, goes to show, I guess how I think absurd the whole, the whole thing is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, and I think about Venezuela, it's, it's it, there's a whole bunch of opportunities there for, you know, kind of on the, like, it really is like basics, that basic stuff, you know, do the basic stuff right, you know, end the sanctions, uh, restore diplomatic relations, uh, uh, engage in dialogue, like just basic, basic stuff, you know, do that. Um, beyond that, you know, I think those of us who have a, a commitment to uh, profound social change in Latin America and around the world, um, can draw some lessons from Venezuela uh, about, you know, uh, how to uh, transform a health um, system uh, so that it benefits the poor, first of all. Uh, how to provide public housing for, uh, you know, almost a third of the population now. Uh, public housing, yeah, new houses uh, for almost a third of the population. You know, so, so some stuff that Venezuela has shown they can do that you can do on a mass scale um, that are lessons for those of us in the north. Like, you know, Toronto right now with our, our tent cities uh, in the midst of a pandemic and with winter coming on, you know, it's, it's, we can do this better, all of us. Yeah, well, that is a great uh, note to end on, I think. Um, Venezuela should, I hope, uh, prick our consciences um, elsewhere, both in terms of building solidarity, but also building our own societies differently and looking for the poor where we live and trying to find new uh, experiments, political ways of, uh, of doing things differently. Um, Jim, it's always good to have you on the show. I'm sure we'll find another opportunity to have you on again soon. Um, but really grateful for your voice, your perspective, your work, and uh, thanks for helping to uh, bring some more clarity to a situation like this. Thanks. It's always a pleasure to talk with you guys. You make me think more deeply about the the issues that um, that we're all trying to wrestle with right now. Well, you do the same for us. So greetings to your listeners and uh, all the best. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You can find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. Um, let's see, what else? Our music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week.
get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up.